Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Could we do a series entitled Rock God without a signature anthem from New Jersey's own Parkway prophet, uh, Bruce Springsteen? What exit are you from, right? Can we thank David and the band again for the awesome job these guys did? Thank you, guys. Awesome stuff, Robbie. Thank you, man. Just great. Born to Run, I mean, compelling song, a road song, actually, with, with local roots. Uh, it was actually written in a small house down the Jersey Shore in Long Branch, New Jersey. In uh, early 1974, and really the song was Springsteen's last-ditch effort to make it big. Uh, prior to Born to Run, uh, he actually had released two albums. I got a lot of them, critical acclaim, but actually had little commercial success. And so the lyrics to Born to Run are, are epic, kind of signifying this last-ditch, all-or-nothing shot at getting out of Asbury Park, out of the stifling atmosphere of, you know, small-town New Jersey, and hitting the open road to freedom and doing life on his own terms. And, and it's a song about about rebellion, about escape, about fleeing from the, uh, the impending responsibilities of adulthood. And, and it's really rooted in this universal cry of youthful desperation. We gotta get out while we're young, cause tramps like us, let's sing it together. Baby, we were born to run. <laughs> exactly. It was actually recorded in New York City, and when it was released, in the summer of 1975, the song of the album just kinda blew up. It just ignited this rocket ride to rock superstardom. For Springsteen, a rocket ride that landed him simultaneously on the covers of both Time and Newsweek in the same week. And that was a first in, in mainstream publishing history. Elvis the Beatles never happened before. And that critical praise in the 70s has really kind of withstood the test of time over the years. Uh, recently, most recently, Born to Run was actually ranked number one on VH1's countdown of the top thousand songs of all time. That's kind of a dubious thing, you know, VH1, whatever. But but it also places in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped um, rock history. And perhaps most significantly, in the late 70s, Born to Run was actually named New Jersey's unofficial anthem by the New Jersey State Legislature. <laughs> now, we are in New Jersey, so I need to know, show of hands, how many of you have actually ever been to a Springsteen concert? Okay, you've seen him live, all right? Awesome. All right. Keep your hands up if you've seen him more than once. More than once? Okay, wow, okay. More than twice. More than three? Anyone seen him more than five times? Okay, Terry, you got competition in the back. More than six times? Seven times? Eight times? Do you know Bruce Springsteen? That's amazing. How many times? How many times? Oh, you're just, he's like, where's the bathroom? He's not even like... <laughs> probably a dozen times. Just incredible. If you have, Give him a free Parkway token. That's great. Uh, Springsteen is known for his electric live shows. They're kind of marathon sessions, high-energy affairs, but especially back in the 70s and 80s when he peaked. But the highlight always seems to be the encore, you know, when the place kind of goes dark and then the lights suddenly come on and those, those five recognizable chords, da -na 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 -na, just kind of ignite a stadium and draw people into this story. The story about a man who ran. This young man who feels so squeezed, so fenced in by his life that he just runs, hops on his motorcycle, grabs his girlfriend, Wendy, and they peel off, sprung from cages on Highway 9, 
chrome wheels, fuel injected, we're stepping out over the line. Big, romantic, powerful images of running and rebelling against all the things in life that seem to hold us back. And like many, you know, classic Springsteen songs, it's jammed full of images of cars and highways and rearview mirrors, symbols of escape, of freedom, of running. And, and I think that's what gives this song some of its visceral power. It connects with something somewhere deep inside all of us that actually naturally desires to run, to somehow fly the coop from everything in life that weighs down, crowds in. And every time I hear it, it just kind of makes me like want to jump in the car, put the top down. I don't even have a convertible. I just want to saw off the top. Turn the radio up and kind of hit the highway, you know, drive down to seaside or, or, or something and escape. Well, today I'd like to talk to you actually about a man who ran because each of us in many ways are literally born to run. Uh, when those harsh realities of life hit, whether that's, you know, relational static or financial hardship or loneliness or, or just a sense of feeling lost, there's something deep like inside all of us that actually wants to get out to, and to run, to escape, especially when you're faced with responsibilities that you're not excited about assuming, <laughs> or with harder spiritual realities that intrude on our little world. There's a great story uh, in the Bible about a man who did th- just that, a man who ran, and his name was Joe, uh, actually Jonah. Uh, you can call him Joe for short. We're in New Jersey. But Jonah's story is found in the Old Testament. I want to invite you to turn with me there. Tommy will bring up the lights a little bit. It's on page 644 if you're using the Bible in your seats. Um, you can feel free to steal this Bible, take it home with you. Uh, we call it sharing, uh, not stealing. But Jonah's a short little book. It's only four chapters, 58 verses in the whole thing. And you'll flip right by if the page gets stuck together. Uh, I don't know if it helps, but it's, it, it's sandwiched between Obadiah and Micah. If, if, you're, thumbing, if you're thumbing past a book called uh, Malachi, you know, the Italian prophet, uh, you've gone too far. But Jonah is actually a story a lot of folks are familiar with in some shape or fashion. Even if you're not, you know, don't go to church regularly or religious. We all know it's like the big fish story, right? about this guy who runs from God, and he gets in this boat, and he's swallowed by this whale, a giant whale named Fudgy, and he lives under the sea, you know, with a girl named Ariel, and uh, sidekick Sebastian, my kids' books get all jumbled up. It's actually not a kid's story. Uh, Jonah is a historical account that's recorded in Scripture by God to teach us some important stuff about life, uh, stuff about ourselves, and what it is inside of all of us that gives this natural predisposition to rebel or run, it, 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 and stuff about running itself, mainly this truth that it's entirely possible for you to run from God, but in the end, you can't outrun God. I'll repeat that since it's really the central spiritual truth that this entire book confronts us with. If you're, if you're a seeker, maybe you're investigating the whole God thing for the first time, awesome, welcome. Uh, or you're a returner, maybe you've been away from church for a long time, and you're taking your first tentative steps back towards faith, or even if you're an active follower of Jesus Christ. But perhaps there's some area of your life you're kind of holding back from his, his authority. The truth is really the same for each one of us. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Joe's story. We'll just look at the first chapter today, and then we'll see how this intersects with our life. Jonah 1, starting with verse 1. We can read it together. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, let's read this together, ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. We'll just stop right there. Man on the run. Now, let me give you a little bit of context so this you know, makes sense. Jonah was a prophet, uh, and that simply means he was a guy that God handpicked to deliver a special message to people. He, he was actually a reluctant prophet. He often obeyed God, but in this, this account, this, he ran from his God-given assignment. 
This is kind of interesting. Jonah's name actually translates to dove. It means dove or peaceful one. And the message is that God wanted to bring peace to this violent city called Nineveh. It says he was the son of Amittai, and Amittai actually means truth. The son of, so he's the son of truth, great name for a prophet, a prophet of peace and truth. And God wants to send him to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, who was the sworn enemy of Israel. And these were wicked, brutal people. The Assyrian Empire was known for its legendary violence and terror. I'll get into the details in just a minute. But, they, but Israel just hated the Ninevites. And according to verse 1, the wickedness of the Ninevites came up before God, and now he wanted to send Jonah to them to be a messenger of peace and truth to a violent and wicked people. And Jonah was like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> and that's significant. Because one of the first things we learn about being in a relationship with God is that God will often ask you to do things that you don't want to do. If you're taking notes, that's our, that's our first point. It's important because although our setting and assignment in life may be different from an ancient Hebrew prophet, the truth be told, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us, yeah? All of us are literally born to run. That is, we may like the idea of being spiritual or, you know, I, I'm in a relationship with God. But if we're faced with a task or a command from God that threatens the way we've been accustomed to living our life, we actually balk. We push back and sometimes run in the direction of what he actually wants us to do. Verse 1 says this. Look at this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord, okay? This is, this is significant. Because the God of the Bible is a speaking God. His word always creates. God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. Creation. Adam and Eve. He spoke to Adam and Eve. Walked with them in the cool of the day. Through the prophets, God speaks. And when Jesus comes in the New Testament, the word became flesh. God speaks through his literal word, he actually talks about his Bible as a living, active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It contains truth that transforms lives. And literally the idea is that anyone who's in a relationship with God, the God of the Bible, the word of the Lord will at some point come to you. And God will speak to some of you a very specific word, maybe even today. His word may be to change something in your life or to move in a new direction or to be obedient to what he asked you to do, even though it wouldn't be your number one choice. And my hope is that God has a specific word for you today, just like he did for Jonah. Because truth be told, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. Most of us don't like being told what to do. That happens from early on. I got a little boy, Dell. He's three years old. He's got those, uh, you know, those crazy looking clocks. What are they, Crocs? Crocs. He's got a pair of Crocs. Where, you know, you got to put them on before you go out in the yard. Dell, put your Crocs on, put your Crocs on. And if he, he, for some reason, he doesn't like to do that. And so he does one of two things. He either takes off in this direction and tries to run out of earshot. So he'll say, what? Well, I, I can't. Three years old. <laughs> or he gets actively defiant. No, you put your crux. I'm like, who made you? It's like Delhi bin Laden. He's like, it's a little terrorist, you know? <laughs> we don't like being told what to do. So when we're confronted with authority, we push back or run. Now, here's the deal. One of the nice things about this church, Liquid, is that it's full of runners. <laughs> People who have run from God at some point, or maybe are even in full flight of him in some area of their lives. Really two kinds of runners around here in a general sense. In college, maybe you, you were a runner. You said actually see ya <laughs> to the whole church thing. Maybe you grew up in, in church and your, at your first taste of choice of freedom. It was like, bye-bye. Uh, God in the rear view, hit the gas. <laughs> Religion and all that, just choose to do life on your own. So a lot of people who end up at Liquid run from God in a general sense because they confuse God with their childhood church. Where, where, where they were like, yeah, I remember that, yeah, where I was beat up where we got kicked around, where my family was judged or exposed to heart, you know, harsh treatment. My, you know, my dad was kicked out or my sister was humiliated or you discovered hypocrisy. And they come to equate the local church experience with God. That, that's kind of my story. 
grew up in the church, pretty much decided it was just really a place of small, petty-minded, judgmental people. And so once I got to college, pretty much just, you know, gave up on the whole thing, stopped going. Don't think I considered myself running from God, not at all, but I was, because of course a lot of other things came with that as soon as I dropped out of spiritual community. But the reality is, is that God is not synonymous actually with your church or religious people, even Christians in general. Unfortunately, we kind of equate the two in our minds, and as soon as we got the chance, we run for the doors. Run from church, from God, the whole thing, and put in the review, set out, life on your own, and our faith is the worst for it. And unfortunately, that's not uncommon, and we're, again, we're full of people who run from God in that general sense, and maybe you're returning for the first time, general running. But the other kind of runner I see a lot around our church uh, here at Liquid is folks who are actually still in church, many of them kind of dialed into the Christian life, but maybe there's one specific area that they want to be sure to keep God out of. All right, people who say they are, you know, maybe they're following Jesus who are like, and maybe this is you, maybe you're like, you know, God, I want you involved in my life for the most part. Uh, please bless my family, my health, our church, but just don't you have anything to say in this one area. Don't you dare go there. God, stay out of that because she's really, really cute. And maybe she'll become a Christian. <laughs> and God, we all know it's easier to become a Christian than to become really, really cute. <laughs> <laughs> So you stay out of that relationship. And you know in that one area, you know, relationships, for example, God would want you to do something entirely different than what you're currently practicing, but you keep it closed off. Everywhere else, God's invited, but in that one area, you're running. You want to keep the doors locked, God and you stay out. Specific area. Maybe it's your finances. You're not even entirely sure how God would want you to invest the money that he's entrusted you with, but you're just pretty sure it's not the way you're currently using it. <laughs> Maybe your finances are in disarray or, or your spending's out of control or you're holding back and giving back, you know, to God, the first fruits of your income. And, and hey, watch it. That's personal. It's nobody's business. My own. I go to church. I pray. I serve with the security team on Sundays, but keep out of that. <laughs> Why? Because a lot of times we don't want to obey when the word of the Lord comes to us because it may create a conflict with our lifestyle. And that presents a problem because through Jonah's example, we learn that God will often ask you to do things you don't want to do. What does God ask uh, Jonah to do here? He gets real specific, actually, in verse 2. He commands Jonah, he says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, here's the deal. Jonah's a prophet, which meant he was a guy who regularly preached or, or gave God's word to people. And God's like, go preach to the Ninevites. And it's like, what's the big deal? Why didn't Jonah you know, want to go on a simple assignment? This is where a little historical context might be helpful to you. Show of hands. Anyone here into Assyrian or ancient Babylonian archaeology? No. No, just you, Tim. Okay, all right. Uh, here's the deal. Kind of disgusting, actually. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Ninevites were known for their legendary violence and terror. Not just terror, but torture, actually. Check this out. Whenever the Assyrians laid siege to a town or city, they were so brutal and violent that it was more feared for what would be done to the survivors of the battle than the soldiers who died in the battle. The Assyrians, the Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. They would rape the surviving women before they would kill them. They would often even rape the little girls and set fire to the little boys. And it, it, brutality. And the surviving men, they would take outside the city gates, stretch them out on ropes so they could skin them alive as a warning. And once they were skinned, they would bury them in the desert sand up to, up to their necks and literally pull their tongues out and drive a stake through their tongues so they'd go crazy as they're dying with thirst in the middle of the desert. And then all through the night, they would make them listen to Paris Hilton CDs. To really dread no, no, okay. I was lying about the last part. The rest is accurate, okay? This is an excerpt. Let me read this. I just, you know, it's just so you don't think I'm exaggerating. This is an excerpt 
uh, from the Biblical Archaeology Review, 859 BC. This is one of the Assyrian kings boasting of, of how they treated, uh, how they expanded their empire. Um, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skin over a pile of corpses. I had my men cut off their heads of their fighters and built a tower before the city. Catch this. The hallmark of the Assyrians was that they would actually decapitate their enemies and take the heads and make a giant pyramid in front of the city gates as a warning saying, we've been here. This is anyone who opposes us. I burnt the adolescent boys and girls, captured my troops alive, cut off their arms and heads, noses, ears, extremities, gouged out the eyes of my troops, and made one pile of the living and one of the heads and hung their heads on trees around the city. Unbelievable. Horrific. When you say wicked, I mean, you don't say wicked about many things. Wicked were the exploits of the Assyrians. And records show that sometimes whole towns of people would actually commit mass suicide if they knew the Assyrians were going to attack them. For modern culture analogy, you might think like the, the slaughters, you know, the killing fields of Cambodia, or the million machete deaths in Rwanda. Um, they were renowned for violence and terror and torture. And Nineveh was the capital city. So that helps us understand a little bit why Jonah balks when God's like, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. <laughs> and Jonah's like, yeah, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> he despised them as an Israelite. He feared them. And in his mind, Jonah had some legitimate reasons why he didn't want to obey God's command. Maybe you can relate. <laughs> Because at various points in the Christian life, the word of the God will come to some of you and you'll hear specifically from God, this is what I want you to do. And you may be like, I understand what you want me to do, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> it may be distasteful. It may be something you fear or simply something like you don't want to do. Perhaps someone has wronged you or done something to you. And the word of the Lord comes to you and he says, I want you to forgive them. To forgive as you have been forgiven. And you're like, I don't want to forgive them. <laughs> I don't want to go and make things right. That's hard. That's scary. They're my enemy. And this, I don't think they really deserve it. <laughs> I know that's what you want me to do, God, but I don't want to do it. Anyone relate to that? Okay. Again, maybe in the area of finances. Okay. I know many of you have heard the teaching of the tithe, right? The biblical tithe or the idea that the first 10% of what we earn, we should give back to God as an offering. It's one of the ways we worship him. The Bible is crystal clear that God wants us to, to, to manage his resources and everything that we have is actually God's, given to us by him so we can be stewards of it. And the idea is that we return the tithe. We don't give a tithe, actually. We never, we never collect an offering. We simply return the first 10% of what we earn back to him as an act of worship. Spiritual reminder to us that everything we have is owned by God. And a lot of you have heard that and are like, well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I mean, I know that's what God says, but I don't want to. In my mind, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. I like, you know, I like my stuff more than I want to obey God. I simply don't want to do it. And that's over here, so just don't go there. Or maybe you're dating somebody and you're like, this is, I get it, but he's just a hottie. And you can't keep your hands off. <laughs> and I know that's like the most realistic, so let's reverse it. She smells really good, you know, unlike your other friends. And, 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 and you get close to this person and you know what happens, right? Come on, we're adults here. We do what comes naturally. And suddenly you find yourself this casual dating relationship doing committed married stuff. And it feels right. So what's the big deal? I mean, you know the word, you know the word of the Lord. It's very clear on this that sexual intimacy of any kind is for marriage. It's not for dating. Living together is not part of God's program. It's a compromise. And so you have a choice. And a lot of people say, well, I know that's what God says, but I want to do this. I, I, don't, I don't care what God says, at least in this area. It just makes too much sense. It feels good. It makes me feel loved. Don't care what God says. 
That's the Jonah in all of us. All of us born to run at some point. Maybe the word of the Lord has come to you and you've thought, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do that now. Um, But I'm working on it. I'm praying about it. How about that one? Let me pray about this a little. I'll do it later. I'll get to it later. Here's the hard truth, hard truth of the day. Delayed obedience is really disobedience. I'll repeat that. Delayed obedience is really disobedience. I see this with my kids. My little boy, Del, three years old, he's learned the power of the three count. You know what I'm talking about? Parents are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that even if I tell him to do something now, he, can pre- he knows he can pretty much get away with anything until I start counting. Del, put down the scissors. Del, put down the sun. Put the scissors down. Okay, Daddy. Del, I mean it now. Okay, I'll, okay, okay, okay. One. <laughs> two. Three. Whoa. Oh. The magic of the number three. I, I'm no longer convinced that's actually an effective parenting technique anymore. Because I'm starting to realize that delayed obedience is really disobedience. And if it keeps up, you know what? It's going to cost my boy one day. Del, don't go on the street. Don't go on the street. One, two, three. Splat. Erwin McManus says the mark of maturity is lag time. Lag time. You can tell the maturity of a person by the distance between the command of God and their obedience to it. In other words, the shorter the distance, the more mature. If the distance is long, that's immaturity. And my biggest fear is that, you know, we have a community of folks maybe, that have a lot of lag time, if obedience at all. Command of God, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, maybe I will, maybe I won't. The word of the Lord will come to you, and oftentimes God will ask you to do something you don't want to do. Jonah said, I don't want to go there. I don't want to have anything to do with those barbaric people. They make me angry. Now, here's the trick in point number two to consider, because whenever God does speak, you can always find a boat sailing in another direction. You can always find a sailing ship going the opposite way. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You may be like, look, I want to follow God. I want to do life his way, obey his commands. But you bump up against some old friends who are like, hey, don't go that way. Come on. Let's go back to what we used to do. Let's go back to that old life. Those in recovery, you know what I'm talking about. I see you shaking your head. Watch how it happens here in Jonah. Verse 3. Look at this. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, let's read it together, to flee from the Lord, born to run. What did God say? (laughs) Basically, go that way? Nineveh was 500 miles east of Jerusalem. And Jonah's like, I think actually I'll be heading that way to Tarshish, which is actually southern Spain. 2,500 miles to the west. (laughs) When you talk about running scared, Jonah not only declines to go in the direction God sends him, he goes 3,000 miles the opposite way. I was reading this one commentator, he was like, it literally would have taken Jonah a full year to make the voyage to where he was actually headed. I mean, that's a lot of running. (laughs) Some of you right now, maybe you can relate. Because maybe you're sitting next to someone, you know, who, who everyone thinks you're all the way on track, but you know in your heart of hearts that you've been running. Again, maybe in a general sense, maybe one specific area only you know about, but you're a long way from God. It started a while ago with, with, a, with, a, with a conscious decision to go the, to the opposite way of what you knew God wanted you to do. And you said, no, sorry, God, not in the area. That's my business. And I get to steer that ship. 
And even now you're sitting here thinking, oh, right now you're smiling or you're smiling some of your coffee because you're like, oh my God, he's talking to me. Uh, who emailed him? This is not good. Uh, the reason some of you are feeling that is because you're not unique. I don't mean that negative. There's Jonah in all of us, just in different areas. I mean, for you, it may be sex, or for, for, for another, it's your job or business, whatever. If you think your story is unique, it's not. Because the surface issue underneath all of this is that we run for one of two reasons. We run because we don't trust God. I mean, we give lip service to it, but we don't really believe he knows best. I mean, does this sound like, you know, great idea, God? <laughs> we think we're smarter. I mean, this started way back in the garden. I mean, the story of God says on the cover of the Bible, folks, Adam and Eve right, go through it. It goes all through the Old Testament, the story of Israel. They run, runs all the way through the prophet. There's Jonah and all of us, and we look for the easier way because the road God gives us seems sometimes hard or dangerous or uncertain. It's not guaranteed. We don't trust him. Or, number two, we run because we think we'll miss out on the good, all the good stuff if we don't go our way. I mean, if I don't give in in my relationship before marriage, I mean, who knows if I'll even get married? Or if you're in a marriage that's falling apart and you see a way out and you think, if I don't take this, I may miss out on another life waiting for me out there. I mean, I know God says I need to stay and I need to reconcile, I need to work this out, but I'm going to Tarshish, man, because at least I won't get my head taken off there. If you think I'm talking, telling your story today, it's not because I'm a prophet or have psychic powers because someone sent me an email. It's because Jonah's story is all of our stories. Everyone in this room can run from God at one time or another. And you can run another direction for a while, but mark this, it will catch up for you. Or maybe you're not um, on the run as much as you are drifting. A few summers ago, our family rented a beach house down on uh, LBI, and uh, just great stuff, you know. Got a house right on the water. And, uh, and we all went out there, uh, my brother, and we were all out in the ocean. It was August. We're, you know, out Jersey Shore, nothing better, right? Just doing our thing, kind of floating out there. It was my wife, Colleen, my brother, Ted, his wife, Sarah. And, and we're all out there. You go beyond the breakers there, and we're kind of just, you know, treading water, you know, just kind of floating up and down, you know? And, uh, and my brother and I throwing a tennis ball. And, and, and for fun, I kept diving underneath, and, you know, through the murky water, I see my wife's leg. You know, and just want to give it like a little yank, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and, and even we were there for some time, you know, just having fun, just floating, treading water, just, just sailing along. I don't know how long we were out there. It couldn't have been more than 20 or 25 minutes, but our arms are getting tired. And we're like, oh, let's go in. And so we turn, we start, you know, heading for shore. And like, we're looking, we're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Where, where's our house? <laughs> the house we were staying in had a pink deck. You could not miss this. It was like our visual landmarker. And we couldn't see it anywhere. Why? What happened? Unbeknownst to us, well, we're just kind of out there, just, you know, just kind of, we had actually drifted. Drifted actually a couple of mile posts down and had no idea till we looked up and, and what the, what? Saw a reference point. Some of you can relate because maybe months or years ago, you were really close to God. You know what I'm talking about. You, you were, you, you know, you're praying, and you're like, snap, God, God answered my prayer, and you're, you're so tuned in, you're like, man, he did it again. What a coincidence. And there's another coincidence. Hey, wait a minute. These aren't coincidences. These are, these are God things. And, and you felt prompted to do or say things, and you, and you do or say it, and he blessed it, and others would be blessed by you. And, and his word that, right, that was a valuable part of your like, everyday life, and like, you'd read it, and it just like, kind of leapt off the pages as you went through it. And you're like, whoa, that's for me. <laughs> that verse has my name on it. That spoke to exactly what was going through at the precise moment. And you'd go to church and it was like, he's doing it again. God's speaking to me. 
Like you're the only one in the room. And then, and then one day, you know, maybe you had a conflict and you couldn't make it, you know, and so you skipped church. And that's no big deal, except, you know, it happened again the following week. It was just a, you know, bad month. But you're like, you know, I'm doing okay. And, and, and you, it, but, you know, then you, you put down his word and, and your prayer just kind of dried up. I mean, it was summer after all. I mean, we need a break. And you didn't see as much of the God activity in your life. And then one day, what the heck? What, what, how, how did, how did, you drifted. How did I get so far from God? It wasn't that you were running as much as you were drifting from him. It's entirely possible in the Christian life to get blown off course, end up in the opposite direction, separated further and further from God. And that can happen intentionally or unintentionally. We're born to run, prone to drift. The Jonah in all of us. Now what happens next is where it gets interesting. Because while it's true you can always find a boat going in another direction, I told you at the beginning you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. And the third truth is this, that God may send a storm to grab your attention. And some of you are like, okay, that's what's going on here, (laughs) right? And you're like, that explains what's happening in my life. Pick up at verse 4. Read this with me. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we won't perish. So this is a cargo ship that Jonah got on. These guys, I mean, these guys were sailors. They're probably used to choppy seas and turbulence and whatnot. But God in his providence, he sends a great wind, a storm so violent, that just pounds the hull of this massive cargo hold, all right? That tells you how fierce it was. Boom, 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 boom. And these seasoned sailors are screaming, fearing for their lives. They're so scared, they start throwing out their cargo. Toss it into the water, which means their livelihood. See ya, forget the trip. We just want to live. <laughs> and where's Jonah? Asleep. But they feel like they're going to drown which is actually one of the consequences of running from God. It's a spiritual truth and it sucks, but the truth is this. People in full flight from God almost always wind up hurting the people closest to them. These poor guys, these sailors had no idea what this is all about. All they knew is they punched a ticket for some guy who like wanted to go to Tarshish or Spain or something, I don't know. <laughs> if you're a runner, know this. There will be collateral damage. Damage in the lives of those you're in close proximity to. And that's sobering. So dad, if you're, if you're running from God, reality is your wife and your kids are going to be hurt most by the shrapnel from your life. See, that's one of the tricks of the born to run mindset. Like Jonah, we think, well, it's my life. It's nobody's business but my own. My decisions only affect me. Oh, really? <laughs> Singles, if you head in your, your own direction, you hook up with the wrong person who you know in your heart of hearts is not God's choice best for you. Not only will you suffer, they will too. It's actually the height of selfishness. People in full flight from God almost inevitably wind up hurting the people closest to them. Rebellion is never victimless. And eventually our lives begin to self-destruct. We start making choices that are illogical or poorly conceived. Why? Because when you turn your back on the source of wisdom and truth, you actually make unwise, uninformed choices. And it just spirals. So you settle for second best in a relationship. You compromise physically. And now it's just kind of routine. I don't know. We kind of just tried it out. Now we're living together. And here we are, I guess. I don't know. What's next? Let's get married. How did I get here? What? And if you stay that blind and that numb, 
Notice Jonah's sleeping during the storm. Almost oblivious to it. After some time, you can wind up in a situation that's irreversible. Or only leads to more pain or hurt or destruction. Well, the sailors in the storm, they're, they're no fools. <laughs> they wake Jonah up, and in verse 7, uh, they said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots that fell on Jonah. Casting lots is just like an ancient version of like a modern-day Ouija board or something. So they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? <laughs> What's your country? From what people are you? And he answered, this is verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. Oh, really? (laughs) Do you, Jonah? Yeah, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he'd already told them so. Oh, Spain, I heard it's beautiful. No, it's not about Spain. I'm just running from God. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't know if you caught the irony in verse 9. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Jonah's actually running from God on the sea to another land. (laughs) Which simply highlights the fact that it's entirely possible to publicly profess that we're following God faithfully, but our private actions tell another story altogether. I mean, we talk about following God, but when it doesn't sync up with the actual direction of our lives, sometimes that's the point at which God sends a storm to get our attention. And so actually your marriage unravels. Or your business caves in. Or your addiction gets discovered, exposed. Or your relationship implodes. And this is where, you know, some of us go, ah, see, I knew it. I knew God was vindictive. See, that's what he does if you step out of line. He sends calamity in order to punish you. That's what I've always feared about God and religion. I'm out of here. But that would be to miss the larger point of Jonah's story. That God and his sovereignty will often allow storms to come into your life, not to pay you back, but to bring you back to get your attention. It's actually the opposite of punishment. It's grace and a very severe mercy. And this is the highest level of discipline, folks. Kids never understand it. Most adults don't either. But sometimes God lets the consequences of our running play out and exaggerate the pain or the scope of the problem so he can get our attention and deliver us and send us in the right direction. And that's what happens to Jonah. The consequences of his... uh, Disobedience get more and more intense. Verse 11 says the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, "What?" this is kind of fun. What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? <laughs> Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, their compassionate sailors, but they couldn't, for the sea grew wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you please. Verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. It took a lot for Jonah to wake up to the fact that his private rebellion was a source of great destruction in the lives of others. But finally, he comes to say, it's my fault. And what's kind of cool is that these pagan soldiers, they don't even want to throw, or sailors, they don't want to throw Jonah in. They did their best to row back, and then basically they convert and pray <laughs> to Jonah's God. How ironic is this? Right? The prophet who wouldn't preach leads this revival on the sea because he's running. <laughs> and then he gets thrown in the ocean. Born to run, bound to sink. And at that moment, with Jonah in the raging sea, under the waves, I bet he's thinking, 
man, I think I took the wrong ship. Because <laughs> it really couldn't get any worse than this. And then, of course, it does. <laughs> Final verse in chapter 1, verse 17. This is where we're going to end uh, today. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. The reason why I like to yank Colleen's leg when we're out in the ocean together (laughs) is because those of you who know her, you know she's actually deathly afraid, not of the water, but what's in the water. Not pools, but like in the ocean where you can't see. She'll tell you it's kind of an irrational fear, right, sweetheart, that, that she actually grew up near the water, but she freaks out about the things in the ocean that she can't see. Uh, one time we were on spring break together down in Florida at her grandfather's house. He has, a, he has a motorboat, and it's right on the Gulf in Fort Myers. And so he takes us out to water ski in the bay, and I will never forget this. Uh, since Carl's, you know, chicken of the water, she's like, no, you water ski, honey. And I'm like, all right, cool. You know, so I hop into the, you know, inky water. I slip on the skis. I grab hold of the tow line. No worries. Um, or Britt, Poppy, her grandfather, he's driving the boat, and he, and he like, you know, kind of idles out. And Colleen sat on the back of the boat, you know, watching. Go, sweetheart. Great. You know. Helping guide that rope in position. And this is like my second time water skiing, right? So, you know, I'm floating there in the water. All right, you know, skis up, tips up. Okay, tips up, you know, kind of holding on. I get the, get the core between the thing. And I'm, and I'm chilling while I'm waiting for, for this boat to kind of, you know, pop it out, kind of idle out there. And suddenly I see Colleen, who's been like smiling, waving the whole time. Suddenly she goes, and now she's out far enough. She just goes, oh, 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 like this, like this. And I see her motion to her grandfather, pop, you know, pop, 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 pop. And she starts pointing out at me. Out past, and I'm just sitting there bobbing in the water. <laughs> out past my head, you know, over my shoulder. I'm like, what? 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 And, and she's like, she's like, to your right, to your right. And then she does this, oh, like this. And I'm like, what the, you know? And then I look over my shoulder, and sure enough, there it is, this gray dorsal fin. It's five or ten yards from me. And I am like, Poppy Florent! You know, boom! <laughs> And actually, Poppy hit the gas so fast, I just, you know, out of my skis, and boom, head first into the water, holding on that tow rope for dear life. I just kept my head down, and that boat dragged me for like 50 yards before I like finally let go. You know, came up gasping, felt like I almost drowned. And, uh, and, and they circled back to pick me up, and, I, and I'm scrambling like up the ladder, you know, into, into the boat. And Colleen's like, like oh, it's a, oh, it's a dolphin. Look, take, take a picture, you know. I pretty much knew at that point I was either going to marry the girl or throw her in the ocean. (laughs) Sometimes what we fear the most, when it actually happens, is a gift in disguise. Jonah hears the word of God, makes the choice to disobey, finds a boat going another direction, brings calamity upon himself and others. And then when it couldn't get any worse, his worst nightmare. (laughs) Not a shark. Not a dolphin. Not even a whale, actually. Notice the scripture simply says the Lord provided what? A great fish to swallow Jonah. And he was inside the fish three days and three nights. When you're thrown overboard in the middle of a raging sea, you tend to think, it doesn't get much worse than that, except if you're swallowed whole by a leviathan (laughs) of the deep. I want you to notice one little word in this final verse here, which really captures everything. The Lord what? Provided. Notice it doesn't say, then the Lord sent a killer shark to gnash Jonah to pieces. Rather, God provided something that seemed like it was going to kill him, but was actually a means of salvation. 
And as we close our look at Jonah today, I, I want to close with this final point. That Jonah's worst nightmare was God's second chance. Tossed overboard, miles from home, alone in the raging sea, that's sometimes where we end up when we run from God. And left to our own devices, we probably would go under, down for the count. But that's when God loves to show up. Sometimes in unexpected ways. Mercy comes gift-wrapped in the form of, of, of an epic failure. And although it may seem like we're going to be swallowed whole, we discover that what seems like it's going to kill you is actually meant to save you. Do you know why God will allow your marriage to unravel? Or, or, or to lose your job over this? Or why God allowed your relationship to break up like that? Or your finances to tank? The answer is because he loves you. It's not to pay you back. It's to bring you back. And sometimes desperate times call for desperate measures. In the uh, New Testament, Jesus tells a story about a young man who was born to run. In fact, he pretty much went through teenage rebellion. Thumbed his nose at his father, loved him. Took his share of the family trust fund, set off on his own. Jesus says he squandered his money and his life in reckless living, debauchery, folly. Until one day he woke up, he lost everything. He hit rock bottom so hard, penniless, all alone, he actually took to eating what the pigs had. And Jesus says at that moment, he remembered his father, his father at home, who he ran from and who loved him. And unbeknownst to him, was waiting for his return the entire time. God doesn't chase us. Actually, he waits for us. And so the boy stopped running, Jesus said, and came to his senses. That's how scripture describes it. And he does a 180 and returns home. And as he gets closer and closer to his father's house, he starts thinking, I wonder how this is going to go over. I wonder how he'll receive me. And then suddenly he sees this figure running, sprinting down the front lawn towards him, full speed, and he sees it's his dad. Only he's not coming to deck him, to lecture him, or confront him. He's coming with his arms outstretched to hug him. And Jesus said, the father wrapped his arms around his boy who ran, kissed him, and wept. And then called his family and servants together and ordered them to throw a party. Why? Because, Jesus tells everyone who's listening to this in stunned amazement, this son of mine was lost, but now he's found. He ran far from home, but he didn't know. I've been waiting this whole time for him to return. And Jesus told that story to show us what God is truly like and how God treats runners, treats the Jonas here today, treats all of us who at some point may have disobeyed, gone in our own direction, with mercy, not punishment, with grace, not guilt. He doesn't give us what our, our sins deserve, but rather he gives us the love and the forgiveness we need. What may be happening in your life right now may not be pleasant. It may represent your worst nightmare. But could you allow that it's actually the thing that God has ordained to lead you back to him? What seems like it may kill you is actually God throwing a lifeline to you. Jonah didn't perish. That's actually the miracle of chapter one. Instead of dying as a result of his disobedience. God provides a miracle to save him. A fish to swallow him and keep him safe and sound for three days and three nights until he could return back to life. And Jesus thought that was the most significant part of the story. A miracle that foreshadowed something even greater. In fact, Matthew 12, when some religious leaders asked Jesus to do a miracle to prove he's the son of God, the means of our salvation, Jesus said this. 
a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now one greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jesus was familiar with the Old Testament. He looked at this story about what happens when we run for God. And he says, it's a miracle, isn't it? Your father was so patient with Jonah and actually allowed him to sink to the bottom and spend three days and three nights buried in the depths of the sea. And Jonah lived to tell about it. Because his worst nightmare turned out to be God's gift of salvation to him. Incredible. You can run from God, but you cannot run him. But then Jesus makes this connection, which applies to you and me, the Jonah's in this room. In the same way, God will allow me, Jesus, to go down to the depths to go undergo death on a cross and be buried for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth as God's provision for you, for you and me in our place. One greater than Jonah is now here to rescue you. And his name is Jesus. And his worst nightmare is the means of our, that's how we're saved, literally. That's the only way we can return home to the Father through the three-day, three-night sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. And the Bible says if we put our trust in that, we can get a second chance. We can be saved. But we have to follow Jonah's example. Although he disobeyed God, ran from him in full flight, he acknowledged, I know it's, it's my fault, and put his trust in the mercy of God. And God responded with love and forgiveness and deliverance when, when all hope seemed lost. Friends, I don't know why uh, you came this morning. Maybe you're a big Bruce fan. That's awesome. Um, but we've covered a lot of ground. Maybe you're running from God in a general sense. Or maybe you're running from God in a real specific area. Or maybe you're in full flight. You're miles away and just thinking about, or, or maybe you're, you're, you're close to God, but you're thinking about maybe taking a short trip to another port. Or maybe you've just been drifting. It kind of, doesn't matter. The hope, the lifeline that's being offered to each of us is found in no other person than Jesus Christ, God's only son. And his death and resurrection on our behalf is literally God's provision. It's the invitation to stop your running and return home to the Father's love. Fully trusting that Christ's death and resurrection, God will completely forgive us and welcome us back no matter how far we've run or drifted. It just takes honesty and a willingness to say, God, I need you. I want to come back home this morning. I want, I want a second chance. Have mercy on me. And save me through your son, Jesus. You may feel like you never could make your way back to God after all you've done, where you've been, and that's not true. Not by a long shot. You can run from God, but you can't outrun him. He won't chase you, but he will wait for you. So you can come home today. You can actually run in a new direction. I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Take this moment. All, okay, all the, let's bow our heads. All the Jonas in this room, listening online, over the web, you take this moment and, and you just pray to God. Pray with sincerity. Tell him where you've been, where you are. He already knows. He's not going to be shocked. But you need to be honest with yourself and speak to him directly. Take a moment. Let's take a holy moment here. You talk with God.
God, we just confess to you that there's a Jonah in all of us. And that's why we thank you for grace. We thank you for your mercy, even when it's severe at times. And that you don't act to pay us back, but to, to bring us back. That no matter how far we, we run, we can't outrun you. We want to thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into this world, Lord, to literally perish on our behalf. Three days and three nights in the earth and then be raised to new life so that we can be completely forgiven and have new life. But I pray for each man and woman today who you've spoken to, that you would kind of just capture that moment for them, Lord, even when they leave here in a few minutes. That would just be a moment, Lord, not to feel heavy or, or any guilt, Lord, but to be the inspiration to take a step back to your love. In Jesus' name.